Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Mies, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color, one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. Just as a reminder, I am doing Podmas, which is my recording of a podcast every night um, until Christmas. So this is installment number 10, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I have to double check myself on that because after doing recordings every single night, it's easy to lose track of how many I've actually done. So let me see here. No, this is 11. Wow. Okay. <laughs> night 11 of recording um, a podcast episode a night. Basically, it's kind of wild. Um, that is indeed a siren in the background. So as per usual, please apologize or please accept my apologies, I should say, for all the noise. Um, you will hear, hear people, sirens, things like that. I live in Baltimore. It's a city. There's noise. So bear with me here. Um, but today's episode is actually going to be another essay. It is going to be a, um, a sort of mini reading revolution, much as I did the other night with the Amiri Baraka reading Black as a Country, which I hope you all enjoyed. Um, I've heard of it before and had never read it in full, so it was kind of fun for me as well to like learn and hear it as I was reading it out loud for the first time. Um, that was really fun on my end, if you want to call that sort of thing fun, um, because obviously it's a critical piece and, and one that is, um, you know, reflecting on black nationalism, um, but also, you know, some of the problems of um, defining blackness through a narrow lens that allows people with ulterior motives, um, you know, to to dominate as, as voices or representatives of the community. So anyway, Long story short, something I definitely want to revisit with Richard to talk about in a formal um, Reading Revolution episode. Um, but in the meantime, on with this one, um, I'm going to actually read a piece by Tressie McMillan Cottom, whom I just, I mean, she is one of, I think, the best writers of our era. <laughs> and I know I laugh because a lot of people may have never even heard of her, which is wild to me. She has a podcast and things like that, um, and she's written several books. She wrote a really great book that did get a lot of like r- wide acclaim um, called Lower Ed. She talks about the problems of for-profit colleges um, and how they're predatory and things like that, a really pivotal work uh, that everyone should check out. Um, but she's also written a book that I thoroughly enjoyed um, called Thick, and it's a collection of her essays, actually, and I think it's something that um, many women, but especially black women, can read and feel rather viscerally. Like every single essay in that book is just solid. Um, and so, so, uh, I mean, I don't know, it just sort of, it's like as if she's in our heads, you know, and just spitting out what we're feeling and obviously she herself is a black woman so that adds to her her ability to to create such relatable um work but for black women I should say um but I think that there are aspects of it that I don't know just like we're very personal I I felt like oh I've been through that you know I experienced that I experienced something very similar to that um and I think that's what makes her work for me at least so powerful 
Um, but I also think her work in general on issues of politics, um, it's incredibly useful for all people. Um, and I don't want to say that it's just something that relates to black women, right? Um, she's a sociologist, she's a professor. So a lot of her writing is academic, but she does so she does it in a way that literally makes it relatable to everyone. It's very accessible. Um, and one of the things that I really, really appreciate about her work is the timelessness of it. So you can pick up one of her essays that she wrote five years ago, 10 years ago, two weeks ago, and it's still going to be something that applies um, in the way that she frames her, her arguments. Um, and part of me wonders in particular with regard to the essay I'm about to read, if, you know, her work is timeless or if the problems are endless, right? If they're, if the problems are perpetual in such a way and repetitive in such a way that regardless of when she wrote something, it will apply five, 10, 12 years later. Right. Um, and so I think in some ways being on this hamster wheel, in America of racism, violence, settler colonialism, patriarchy, hyper-capitalists, overreach, so many things, right? Um, there are aspects of it, of her work at least, I should say, that just feel like it applies to any time period. <laughs> um, so the one the essay I'm going to read today by um, Tressie McMillan Cottom is actually called A Few Notes on Gaslighting. It's one of my favorite essays of hers, um, and one of my favorite essays, period, I think in terms of like my history of reading, I think it very succinctly addresses so many problems that are ongoing in this country and that have a very long history in this country, um, in a very clear, clearly articulated way, um, that anyone can kind of get down with. So I'm going to read that and I'll discuss it a little bit after the fact, um, and go from there. Anyway, this is A Few Notes on Gaslighting by Tressie McMillan-Cottom. She wrote it on um, January 22nd, uh, 2017. Okay, here we go. A few million, mostly women in the United States and abroad, marched yesterday. They marched to protest various forms of oppression, symbolized in a new presidential platform that involved explicit racism, sexism, and xenophobia. That seems like a good thing. Today, the President of the United States surrogates held several media junkets. The point of these media events? To lie about how many people did, or rather did not, attend this year's presidential inauguration. Yes, it is all very strange. What it isn't is new. Many people have used the term gaslighting to describe the new President of the United States' relationship to facts and evidence. I was around when gaslighting became a term du jour in various internet circles that talk about social movements and social justice. Basically, gaslighting is a form of manipulation through persistent denial, misdirection, contradiction, and lying in an attempt to destabilize and delegitimize a target. For example, the easily proven, blatant lie that President Trump's inauguration has the largest crowds quote-unquote ever, period, as his press secretary claimed, would be an attempt to deny reality, misdirect public interest in the president's mandates to govern, contradict arithmetic logics, destabilize media and organizers, and delegitimize direct democratic action. Seems to fit. But again, my point is about how new is this regime of destabilization and delegitimization. 
I don't harp on this for ego's sake. I bring it up because I do not know how people are going to resist direct attacks on basic civil liberties if they spend an inordinate amount of time reinventing the wheel. The other side is moving ahead with politics while the opposition worries about this quote-unquote new gaslighting culture of politics. One could use all kinds of historical examples of how gaslighting works and how people have resisted it. I will use the examples most available to me because of my expertise. This isn't exhaustive. And in fact, you can find some example of what we often call hegemony in any stratified society. Hegemony is when the undue influence of a group serves your interests. Gaslighting is when it does not. If today's hegemony feels like gaslighting to you, it is probably because you've benefited from the power of undue influence over facts and rationality for a long time. For example, let's take the idea of quote-unquote race. Race is a way to stratify a society. Ergo, there must be some hegemonic power served by the creation of this social fiction. As it turns out, the fiction of biological, irrefutable, natural quote-unquote racial groups serves the interests of those at the top of that hierarchy. In our current world, that would be whiteness, the idea or concept, or white people, the persons and groups granted the privilege of that idea and concept. How could a fiction easily refuted by science, that bastion of rationality, not only persist but take on so much social power that today we talk about it being real and biological, even though we know it is not? That kind of gaslighting involved the creation of an entire language, political and economic system. When it served powerful interests for science to justify oppression, scientists have turned evidence into fictions. Governments have rewarded these fictions with funding, backed by military dominance. And our institutions have validated them by promoting those willing to trade in these fictions as if they are facts. Rationality, or what we call it, is really a proxy for, quote, the interests of military imperialism at any given historical moment, end quote. The history is long, from phrenology to dreptomania to intelligence IQ tests to the, quote, acting white hypotheses. We make facts of fiction every day. We gaslight oppressed people every day. We tell them they are clinically insane for wanting freedom, stupid because of the migration patterns that inform their genetic code, and are bullied into poor academic performance, even when they tell you that they are not. How have racialized people, especially black people, dealt with this kind of sustained gaslighting? I'm working on a project right now that will probably eat the next 10 years of my life, In working on that project, I'm considering the very rationality of science, especially technology, given the irrationality of quote-unquote race and racism in the information age. A few lessons from this reading. Black people continue to produce evidence-based knowledge that both advanced rational science, for example, scientific method, and that also expanded its very definitions, for example, valuing experience and emotions. Black people built institutions to support, produce, and archive this knowledge. Our black colleges, churches, neighborhood groups, Black Planet, and live journal communities are also archives. Black people took to task every race fiction socially, politically, and economically, even knowing that hegemony stacked the deck against our winning a fair hearing, outcome, or reparation. We do it for the sake of documentation, and because ethical appeals to the idea of reason matter. Black people have instituted rules of politically linked fates, making strategic alliances when necessary to exploit weaknesses in any given political context. We rescind and renegotiate those rules as necessary. 
often generating criticism of purity tests and inconsistencies, but political alliances are, by definition, malleable. Black people have built affirmative identities that refute fictions about our natural inferiority. Even when our quote-unquote comrades mock us for it, we have taken the idea of co-opting and repurposing language seriously because we know discourse is the grounds on which a lot of political action will happen. So yes, we change what we're called every five decades. We do it because hegemonic powers can co-opt our identification and use it against us. Technological advancement only speeds up the half-life of this co-option. We ignore the mocking and resist through discourse anyway. Those are some of the lessons from what I might call the original gaslighting, i.e. imperial racism. So, I mean, I think one of the most crucial aspects of this essay is just the way that it really gets at the feeling that so many people of color, especially Black people in this country, and I would say Indigenous people too, have regarding its history um, and the way that history is discussed and the way so many things that happen in the present are also discussed and framed and the way that violence against us is legitimized. Um, rationalized by those in power repeatedly or those who benefit from that power structure repeatedly. Um, I think most recently of the Kyle Rittenhouse situation, right? Um, We saw (laughs) like very strange uh, defenses of his actions by people that we would normally have looked to perhaps in the recent past and called our allies, um, but who recently have made shifts into right-wing talking points and right-wing rhetoric for the sake of making a buck. And I think that it makes it clear that, you know, sometimes the money matters a little bit more than the principles, quite a lot more than the principles that some people have. But some people are willing to sell out those who are marginalized quicker than others because they themselves are not marginalized through the same means. So making that money um, doesn't really come at a, at a cost for them because they don't lose anything regardless of their public opinions. Um, and, you know, I think, like, even when we talk about American history, um, American ideas of quote-unquote democracy, you know, in the process of having these discussions, some people have to catch themselves when they're talking about what's new or different, or undemocratic, or unusual, right? This this phrase, for example, or several phrases actually that are so common in everyday speech in the U.S. are literal examples of historical gaslighting. So for example, the idea of this is a nation of immigrants, that quotation or that, that saying is historically false, and it spits in the face of people who are indigenous and who were brought here, trafficked here as slaves, right? Um, We were not immigrants and we did not choose to come here under those circumstances and certainly did not um, see it as a process of, you know, our voluntarily helping make the nation. Even the idea of it being a nation, right, is is (laughs) laughable when you're talking to someone who's indigenous to this land and sees everyone here who came over as part of this quote-unquote nation-building process as an enemy combatant, right, as a, as a colonizer, as someone who violated their land and their rights to exist, right, um, their personhood constantly. Um, we have other phrases like, this is not who we are, that people just regurgitate without even thinking about it and without recognizing the simple fact that this is exactly who the what the U.S. is, always has been, and the idea of there being a United States in the first place hinges on 
being exactly this and this in this case meaning a violent um, you know white supremacist state that much has not changed right we this is exactly who we are this is how we started this is how it has been and the even the idea of we right who is this royal we it's a royal we that doesn't include um, the majority of the people who are oppressed by those with power right this is not who we are excludes people like me, right? I don't have any real power in this system other than maybe voting, but uh, even then that's arguable in terms of the power that that can exert, right? Um, you know, I don't see myself as part of this we in that this is not who we are because I never saw what the we was in this case as legitimate, right? I don't see settler colonialism as legitimate, as a legitimate source of statehood. Um, and so I don't see that let's say, for example, if Americans are quote unquote behaving badly, doing things that are violent, engaging in things that involve harm to others, um, when we do those things every, well, not we, but when this country does those things every day, I don't see those quote unquote bad acts as anomalies, right? It's not a surprise to me when people behave in this country in monstrous ways, because it's something that our country was founded on and that it utilizes whenever necessary in its eyes to maintain itself, to maintain its wealth, to maintain its control of the land and resources of, of people all around the world. And, and, you know, she's absolutely right when she talks about the fact that these women who are marching and talking about, you know, how Donald Trump is such an exception to this otherwise illustrious set of records of our presidents. It's just, it's obnoxious. You know what I mean? Because how do we look at, how do we look, at those people and and see them as our sisters or as our allies or as people who are our quote-unquote comrades when they're believing in historical fiction that negates our everyday reality and then negates our histories as well, right? And, and in tandem, it's sort of operating to negate both and to deny the reality that we live and have lived for centuries here. Right. Um, and don't, I mean, it, as, I'm, as I'm describing this, I mean, I'm getting angry because it's just it's frustrating because it's a constant situation where, as she says, you know, the idea of our being gaslit, which, again, to quote her, is a form of manipulation through persistent denial, misdirection, contradiction and lying in an attempt to destabilize and delegitimize a target. I mean, it happens nonstop and it happens from official sources. Right. Um and, and happens between, it happens to us from friends, quote unquote friends, right? It happens to us by people who have bought into the lie of what the U.S. promises, right? Um, and it is frustrating because you don't necessarily, I think this is what makes her discussion of gaslighting so useful, is because like in a case of gaslighting, when you're dealing with someone who has like narcissistic personality disorder, who's abusive in some way to you, etc., you can't sit them down and say, hold on, let me explain the entire history of our relationship so you can understand why you're wrong and why what you're saying is harmful to me because it denies my suffering. That is impossible to do. We try to do it through books. We try to do it through asserting our humanity over and over to people that literally don't care. Um, we try to do it by counteracting some of this misinformation and disinformation by teaching 
hell, by having a podcast about it, right? (laughs) And at the end of the day, those things only go so far. And you can only go so far as you're trying to do these things as well as you're trying to accomplish these things. Because the moment that, you know, I put out a podcast, let's say, correcting something that's in the media, there are tens of thousands more sources out there that are supporting it, right? Um, That are supporting this idea of this historical fiction, whatever it may be at the time, Um, that supports this idea that distorts reality and distorts what has happened to marginalized groups. And, you know, I used to say a while back, like, always keep, try to keep a a few tweets on hand whenever you make, like, tweets related to moments in history or moments that are, you know, that seem, like, very present but will maybe make history. Kind of look back on your tweets every, every few months. Look back on things that you've said on social media every few months or things that you've kind of flagged or held in your favorites or emailed a friend about or your family member or whatever. And look back on them in a few months and see if your opinion has changed on those issues, if those issues have become more important or less important, and also how the media has operated to distort or perhaps political figures as well, to distort what's being said in those moments and those news items, right? Um, Because it can be a really eye-opening experience, even if it's something as simple as a tweet from four or five months ago. Um, And, you know, I think also that uh, Tressie's discussion here of race and the way race operates as such a a fictional means of categorizing us, but also, um, again, like misdirecting us um, is really important. And that's not to say, as, as we always have to remark you know this is not to say that race doesn't have material effects it's to say that it's amazing that something that is literally a historical fiction that's built on these ideas that are left over from you know hundreds and hundreds of years ago the church and the quote-unquote enlightenment the middle ages and these wars between you know continents and all of that for the Crusades. I mean, racialization started so early and just intensified with time. And yet the whole thing is a literal lie. And yet we still operate under a system that reminds us daily that those of us who are not white, and particularly those of us who are indigenous and black in this country and elsewhere, are nothing, are less than nothing, are inadequate, inferior, incorrect, just in our existence, right? And a mistake, if you will, a blight upon um, or blemish upon this nation. And we didn't choose to be here under these circumstances, right? And for Indigenous people who were here from the beginning, they didn't choose to to have their land invaded, and they didn't choose to die, and they didn't choose to have you know, all of these things, horrible, systemic, social, moral, whatever things happen to them. No one made that choice except for the people enacting that violence. And yet still putting us in these categories that we ourselves did not adhere to and did not see ourselves as, right? Um, You know, in a class that I'm TAing for, we read a book recently, um, by a man named William Apes, and he was like, he's a, he's obviously, you know, deceased now, but he was writing in the 1800s about being multiracial. So he's um, part indigenous, part white, and perhaps part um, African-American as well. And he's writing about his experiences, you know, growing up in this period of time when 
obviously being an indigenous person, although arguably still today, um, meant that he was seen as uh, subhuman by the colonizers in many cases, or at least not not as an equal to them, right? And at one point he says um, rather blatantly in the text, you know, he's like Indian, the idea, this, this term Indian is a slur. It's not something in the Bible. It's not something that we called ourselves, right? It's something that's that's used as a means of violent categorization of us um, as indigenous peoples. And we have our nations, we have names for ourselves that white colonizers do not honor. And they use the idea of Indian, literally the term Indian as a derogatory term, as an insult, as a way to, to slur us. Right. Um, and you know, (laughs) can you imagine, I mean, and, and same, the same can be said of the idea of black, right? Like, Yes, there are people with very dark skin. There are people with skin that is black, literally, like literally the color black. But ultimately, a grand majority of people who are black come in a variety of other colors too. And this this fiction of black as opposed to white, as opposed to whatever fill in the blank, you know, race, the idea of red for indigenous people, these are all categories assigned to us by colonial efforts, colonial, like people involved in colonial governments, colonizers themselves, right? And we continue to use these categories to define ourselves. Now, obviously, we have made, we've gone through great pains to um, reclaim these ideas and reappropriate their meaning and change the meaning and, and use them as powerful monikers for our groups, which I think is really important and special and worth recognizing. So I'm not negating that. But I'm saying that the simple fact that we started that way by, um, you know, basing these these names on categories that were assigned to us and not things that we called ourselves. We were more than just those things. And yet we were reduced to those ideas and had to kind of work with them because of the circumstances. And <laughs> You know, it's, I think her, her line in particular where she says, hegemony is, quote, hegemony is when the undue influence of a group serves your interests. Gaslighting is when it does not. If today's hegemony feels like gaslighting to you, it's probably because you have benefited from the power of undue influence over quote unquote facts and rationality for a long time. That's one of my favorite lines in the whole text because truly, I mean, when you talk to people and they're like, you know, hyperventilating over the things that Republicans did or said or that Trump did or said, you know, for years and years at this point, obviously he's out of office, but there's still some people who are on this. It's so frustrating, right? It's not to say that what he and his cronies and his fans did wasn't wrong. I mean, it's definitely, they did a lot of bad stuff. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that. But to act as if it is exceptional what they did or do is the part that's gaslighting, right? It's the part that's not recognizing the history of violence from all political parties in this country on the basis of their existing as as arms, as elements of the colonial uh, state, you know, <laughs> they're not legitimate. Nothing about nothing about it is legitimate. And yet we're forced to, to accept it as legitimate and we're forced to choose between these parties that are illegitimate and that do not represent us and that continue to harm all of us who are marginalized through one way or another. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just, 
it's really frustrating. Um, and I, I recognize that, you know, perhaps Tressie herself, um, Professor Cottom, didn't intend to take it that far, right? I know that her politics are sort of, um, I always kind of think of it as like liberal with grievances, right? She's liberal, but she makes really, really important um, commentary on where they're wrong. And I, I would say that she's definitely to the left of the Democratic Party, but I don't know, I don't, I don't think she's like a communist or something, right? That's not the impression I've ever gotten from her. But I think she's someone who recognizes like sincerely the problems with this system and constantly points them out to people, even as she exists within these spaces. And so I admire her for that. And I hope that she continues to do that because I think people listen to her because of that. Um, but, you know, just what I like about this essay so much is that you can take it in so many different directions and you can apply it to so many different things that are still happening and that like continue to happen and likely will keep going on and on um, because I don't see things getting any better anytime soon. But I really, I just appreciate her marking out this phenomenon and making it so plain and clear um, that, you know, sometimes just daily interactions, we're being forced to reckon with the idea that not only do our lives not matter in the eyes of some people, but our histories don't either. And that our historical experiences are, can be so easily whitewashed um, and ignored and reduced to, to this sense of you all are just imagining your suffering, right? You're just imagining what's happened to you. You're just, you're just not grateful enough, or you're just not, you're not, giving the forefathers or these people who literally pillaged the land, raped and murdered and kidnapped people, you're not giving them the benefit of the doubt, right? You're not being generous enough in your interpretation of what they had to say and what they thought. Honestly, whatever they thought and had to say is garbage. <laughs> it's illegitimate, you know? How are you going to steal people and steal land and then talk about equality, being equal in the eyes of the law, or having some semblance of, you know, rights. Whose rights, you know? How are you going to steal land and then talk about the rights that you have to live upon it and pursue happiness within it? Are you kidding me? You know, these, these ideas that are seen as fundamental to this government start its problems, right? Um, and because they constantly rely on a fiction, they rely on a fiction that this was meant to be all of our land, and it was not. It was never meant to be that. And it doesn't, it continues not to be that, right? It doesn't, this, the, the idea that this was a democracy for all of us continues not to be that, you know? And I think sometimes, you know, even, even people of color can fall victim to this, this sort of whitewashing of their own histories from lack of knowledge or just out of being brainwashed themselves, right? This idea that they they can somehow benefit from these systems that have been built with their impression their oppression in mind, you know, as a central tenet of their existence. And I'm not trying to be a negative Nancy, but that's the truth, right? Like at some point we have to look at the truth and we have to say, you know, what is what is making it what is winning? What is doing well for ourselves in a system that exists to deny us our humanity? Do we want to be a part of that? Is that the legacy that we care about? Is this the nation that we want to call home? I know that we have very little choice in many cases, 
but we can fight all the way down, right? And I, I'm willing to say that, you know, this is, I, I was born here, but this is not my country. This is not my land. This is not a place that was meant for me. This is not where I should have been, uh, should, where, where, where my family wanted to be, right, historically. Um, and I think we have to acknowledge the simple fact that it's, you know, it, it, <laughs> it's like stealing someone's house and saying, here, take the room that you want. And then rec- not recognizing that that person who doled, who, you know, like sort of separated the rooms out can attack you and take that room whenever he or she feels like it. It's not your room. It's not even your house. It's not even his house, right? But anyway, love this piece. Definitely check it out. I will link it in the show notes. I think there's a lot more to be said than what I've just said, but I've already gone on for 30 minutes about it, and I think that's more than enough. Um, (laughs) I'm getting fired up, as you can see. I think it's just because it's like, you know, I I feel like all this stuff in the news recently that I've not been commenting on in the Podmas episodes, but probably should at some point. It's just like, you know, I'm just tired. And I recognize now, I remember when I was little, you know, and old black people that I knew in my family, you know, growing up, they'd be like, yeah, I don't watch the news anymore because I'm just tired. I'm tired of hearing about the same thing over and over. And I was kind of like, yeah, but you know, you need to know what's going on. You need to like have an idea of what's up and like fight back and all this stuff. And they're just like, yeah, I'm good. Right. And I, I get it now. <laughs> I get it. I totally get this desire to just check out Because you look at the system and you say, what good does anything that I do, um, how how does it help change things? Am I not just like trying to, you know, like push that rock up the hill only for it to come down again, right? It's like the forever, forever state of Sisyphean tasks that we have to do as a society, but in, in particular as oppressed peoples right like I don't know it's it's a lot to think about um and I promise to have lighter episodes you guys I know that a lot of the Podmas episodes have been kind of dark but I think just like reading this now and thinking about things that are ongoing and yeah just continuing to get worse and that are being done in our name, the violence that's sustained on on the backs of, you know, people, innocent people, just, yeah, abroad, here, et cetera. It's, it's frustrating to see and to know that our tax dollars go to that and our our name goes to that, right? We're, we're being pulled along in enacting violence against people just like ourselves here and abroad, and it it makes me nuts. Like I hate it. And I wish that we were not so collectively wrapped up in saving this place, right? Like what is there to save? What is there that's good about this? You know, um, what is there to, to resurrect when everything burns is, you know, I don't, (laughs) I don't know. And I, I don't see this as being a, as something that we need to, to pick back up in the end. You know, perhaps we need to s- watch things burn and just take 
solace in that. Take solace that perhaps this experiment is finally coming to an end. I don't know. I mean, and I'm not, by the way, to be clear, like I know some people will listen to this and think that I'm like calling for something. No, I'm just saying on on a sort of purely theoretical front, right? Like as we watch the U.S. crumble, and unfortunately we're having to bear the burden of that, further. Um, but you know, you will never see me chest thumping for this country unless it's in an act of duress, right? Like if you're, you're putting, you know, holding a gun to my head and threatening to murder me or something. And I say those things, but even then there's not much that I think is worth saving here. Um, and, and it's frustrating to feel that way. But it's even more frustrating when you're pointing out all of these problems and you have people who claim to be on your side saying it's not so bad, but these are exceptional times. What's happening to you all is unusual or to happening to us is unusual and therefore we care. Um, and that's why they care because it's unusual for them to go through the suffering that we've had to go through for centuries. It's unusual for them to have to confront the reality of oppression, even if it's slight, even if it's not really oppression for them, right? But any slight discomfort makes them feel as if their lives are being threatened when it's actually our lives that have always been threatened, that continue to be threatened, and we are the ones who bear the most burden, even amongst those who in this time are calling themselves the, you know, those who are suffering under the thumb of whomever, like fill in the blank leader, right? Um, it's just, yeah, it's a lot. But anyway, read the essay if you have a chance. A chance if you listen to it, but you want to go back and reflect on it. Um, look at the actual quotations. Please see the show notes; they are there. Uh, the essays there, I should say. Take a look at that um, and follow her. Follow Tressie McMillan Cottom on on twitter and social media as well she often has really interesting tweets posts a lot of interesting articles and things like that and sometimes it's just funny stuff um but i think she's one of those people that you can kind of look to and know that the call that she's making is one that's very well deliberated and thought about and um one that will make you think so with that said i hope you all are taking care of yourselves that you're doing well and that you have a good night be on the lookout of course uh for more podmas episodes coming coming forward coming soon there we go english (laughs) coming soon this week um and yeah anyway good night everyone bye-bye